0: Uh, please keep your Bibles open um, as we go through this passage, because um, I will be jumping around within Chapter 7. Um, so please make sure that I'm preaching from God's Word as I do so. Uh, let me pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the riches of your Gospel, for this wonderful message of grace that we've heard so far. And then as uh, we head into Romans 7, as we dig into maybe some objections that people might have or questions about the gospel. Lord, please help us. Please help us to see how this is relevant to us today and how this affects how we live for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of rules. Uh, Next slide, please. Are you someone that rolls your eyes a bit when management at work introduces yet another rule that you need to follow at work? Are you someone that feels that rules make you feel claustrophobic, uh, suppressing your freedom and expression of yourself? Or maybe you're someone who loves rules. Maybe you think that rules will make this world a better place. It'll make it a, a safer, less chaotic place. Maybe you love starting a new board game and you rub your hands with glee uh, as you spend the next 30 minutes explaining all the rules in its detail, its complexity and strategical nuances. And this question of what we think about rules, it it matters a lot, uh, particularly for those of us who are Christians, right? Uh, Throughout history, there's never been a moment where Christians aren't debating, they aren't fighting over whether we need more rules or less rules, right? Right? And so some would say that we need more rules to protect our holiness, to, to safeguard against sin. While others will say, well, we've been set free from rules. The, the, the gospel is not about rules. Stop being so legalistic. Stop being a Pharisee. And so I, I wonder which end of the spectrum we might naturally find ourselves leaning towards. And the thing is, if we've been following along with Paul's arguments so far in this letter... This is a natural next question for us to ponder, right? Paul has explained both the bad news and the good news. While we were all stuck in sin, whether you're a Jew or non-Jew alike, God sends Jesus as a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. This is all a free gift. We don't work for it. We can't work for it. All we do is trust God. And Paul has explained that the wonderful theological benefits of receiving this gift. Complete assurance, peace with God. We're made into a new humanity, no longer ruled by death, but by life. And last week, last time, we anticipated one objection to all this. If we get all this for free, then what incentive is there to live rightly? Does it mean that we can keep living in sin? No. Paul says we've died to our old selves. Our sinful lives were buried with Christ and we now live new lives to serve God. And so coming out of this, there's another objection that Paul anticipates, right? Because if we are to die to sin, if we are to be slaves of God, as we saw last time, then, well, that means that we still need to obey God's law, right? We're still bound to the Old Testament law, all its rules, right? All the rules of the first five books of the Bible, the the laws of Moses, these must still apply to all of us, right? Well, strangely, Paul says no. And here Paul provides his own illustration. I love it when the, the Bible provides its own illustration and I don't have to come up with one myself. And so the illustration is marriage, You are only bound to your spouse as long as you both shall live, right? Evan and Lydia, you you guys are very familiar with that. uh, And so you're only called a cheater uh, when your spouse is still alive. You've broken your vows, you're an adulterer. But, you know, God forbid, if your spouse isn't alive anymore, then you're legally free to marry another person, right? We're only bound to our spouses. We only serve and are fully committed to them while they are still alive, And so Paul says, this is exactly what's happened when we follow Jesus, right? There's been a shift, a break in that moral commitment. When Christ died on the cross, not only did we die to sin, but also to the law. And the result is that we now might be freed from the law and belong to another spouse. We belong to the one who was raised from the dead to bear fruit for God. Now, does this sound a bit strong to you? We died to the law. Why does, why does Paul use such strong language? Why couldn't we bear fruit for God if, if this law was meant to be such a good thing? Well, there's a simple reason. Paul says, the law doesn't do what you think it does, right? We need to remember who, who Paul's talking to at this point, right? Uh, this, a big chunk of the church in, 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 in Rome... They're Jewish Christians. They grew up understanding that the law is what made them good in God's eyes, right? They alone had God's laws. They alone had God's way of living. The law is what makes us holy and acceptable before God. The thing is, even for us who aren't Jewish, we can relate to that, right? Don't we just feel a little bit more superior, a little bit more righteous when when we have rules that we don't see other people obeying, right? We don't swear. We don't get smashed every Friday like our colleagues or or our our, our classmates do. And that makes us feel a bit good about ourselves. But why does the Lord not do what we think? Why do having rules not actually make us better people? Well, verse 5 explains, For when we were in the realm of the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. See, Paul says the law, when we read it, when we understand it, instead of immediately causing our lives to burst out with love and compassion, justice and righteousness, instead of us becoming immediately obedient to God's law, what happens? It actually arouses sinful passions within us. It actually brings death. How can that be? Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, at this point Paul's talking about the commandment of do not covet, right? That commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. See, what's the issue here? The issue, isn't, is, the issue is that we are not blank slates. We, we don't all start off in this morally neutral and empty position when we encounter God's laws. The problem is that there is sin inside every, each and every one of us. We, we saw that last time in Romans 6, remember? Before being united with Jesus, we are under the power of sin. We couldn't respond to God's laws as we were supposed to. We couldn't help but sin. And so Paul now shows us how deep this sin is. Sin seizes the opportunity. It pounces at every opening it gets. And here, it even bends the law to its own advantage to produce even more sin. I really love the way um, a preacher, Philip Jensen down in Sydney, illustrated this many years ago when I first heard it. He said he was on a train one day and as he was traveling along, he saw this sign. No spitting. And he said, up to that point, he had no desire whatsoever of spitting. But after seeing the sign, Philip could start to feel the the saliva welling and stuff inside of his mouth, and he suddenly had this irresistible urge to spit. Right? Apart from the law, without the commandment, do not spit, you could say, the sin of wanting to spit was dead in Philip. But the law came. And sin sprang to life. And all he wanted to do was to spit now. And we've all experienced this in our own lives in different ways, haven't we? Like, we, we don't have the law of Moses growing up over our heads. Or maybe you haven't felt this urge to spit when you, when you saw that sign just now. But just think back to when we were kids. What was your first response when our parents said, go wash the dishes, go clean your room right now? Well, if you're anything like me, then... I'd be like, no, I operate under my own timetable, thank you very much. Who are you to tell me what to do? I've got more important things to do than to wash the dishes or clean my room. When someone points out our wrongdoings one way or another, when we're not following the the road rules 100%, maybe someone pointed out that our way of parenting wasn't the most loving to our kids, it wasn't in line with the gospel of grace, perhaps. Maybe it's how we use our money. And someone points out, hmm, is that really the best way you could be using your money? And deep down, we, we, we all know that they're right, don't we? But more often than not, what's our immediate response? Most of the time, don't we just get defensive? Who are you to judge me? And sometimes, don't we actually want to go further? We, we want to keep doing that thing that someone's told us not to do. We want to push it even further just in order to spite them. Have you felt this way before? was it just me? right? This same principle applies to us even though we don't live under the authority of the law of Moses. Rules, boundaries, as good as they are, they can never fix the root problem, the problem of my heart, which is sinful. When sin is there inside of us, these very rules, instead of fixing the problem of sin, it can actually make sin worse. And so now at this point, some of us might be wondering, well, if the law, if the rules are this useless, if it just brings about more sin, why don't we just ditch it all together? Why don't we just scratch out the law from our Bibles? Why, why do we have to keep, you know, uh, studying the Old Testament or the first five books of the law? And so Paul raises this very hypothetical objection right here. If the law simply bears fruit for death, does that mean the law is sinful? Again, is the law something that is to blame for bringing death into my life? Is the law bad? And here the answer is, of course, a strong no from Paul. Because he says that even though the law doesn't do what you think it does, the law itself is good, right? Why is the law not bad? Well, because it points out sin. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? The law becomes the measure, the standard by which we are judged. The law lays out plainly what is right and what is wrong. And so how can that be a bad thing? A couple of years ago, we bought some bathroom scales from the shops of our family. And I went to unbox it, I set it up, and I decided to step on it to check if they worked. But then I saw the number and I was shocked. Frankly, I was a little bit offended by the scales. I'm not going to tell you what that number was. But when it comes to us being seen as sinners and failures because of God's law, to blame that on the law itself would be as stupid as me blaming my scales for the number that I saw. Right? It simply points out a part of my life that has issues, that needs fixing. That's all it was. And this is what God's law is doing, right? As we compare our lives with the law's standards, it highlights just how much we fall short. It's not the law's fault for being accurate. It's not the law's fault for being honest and true. It's actually doing its job perfectly well. And so to answer the question that I raised earlier, how are we as Christians today meant to view the Old Testament law? Because there is widespread attitude, there's a widespread attitude amongst Christians that the law is somehow either irrelevant to us, outdated, right? It's been replaced, uprooted by the New Testament. Uh, Some even say that the Old Testament laws are are works-based, right? In contradiction to the grace of the gospel that, that we've been seeing so far. This is just not the case. We don't have time to flesh this out. If, if this is something that you're interested in, um, it's one of my, my, my uh, hobby horses, so I, I do love to talk about this. Come chat to me, and we can nut it out a bit more. But the Old Testament laws and the Old Testament more broadly is neither irrelevant to us today nor in opposition to the Gospel. In fact, the New Testament constantly, all the time, draws upon the Old Testament to prove, to give meaning, to give depth and colour to this gospel message that we hold so dearly. Even in this chapter, notice how Paul is so careful to point out how good the law is. He describes it as God's law. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. It is spiritual, verse 14. There's just no room to suggest that now that we have Jesus here, that the law is something that we can neglect as God's people now. Just think about when Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, which at that time was primarily the Old Testament that he was talking about. Just think about Jesus' words as he says that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And so if Jesus came to fulfill God's law, then I would go so far as to say that if we don't know the Old Testament, if we don't know the law well, then we actually haven't properly understood the New Testament, right? We are still very much people who intimately need to know and love God's law. Okay, so where are we so far? So the law doesn't do what we think it does. It doesn't actually produce righteousness within us, but the law is good. We still need to hear God's truth in the law. And so what is our relationship with the law meant to look like then? And so while Paul doesn't fully answer the question uh, here for us today, the answer actually comes in the next chapter. We still get a glimpse of it here. Verse 6. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Uh, So note that just because we've been released from the law, we still serve God, right? Just like we saw last time, we are still slaves to God. We still serve righteousness. It's just that the way that we serve is different, right? Not No longer by the written code, but by the Spirit. Because there's a huge difference between doing something because you've been told to do something, versus doing something because in your heart, you know that that's the most loving thing to do for other people. That in your heart, you just deeply want to see God honoured. Right? There's a huge difference. Because the law served its purpose for a time. When it was given, it laid out the specifics, the details of what loving God looked like for Israel living in the promised land. Giving a tenth of your income, leaving some fruit in your, in your fields unpicked so that those who are poor, those who couldn't support themselves, could come along and, and provide for themselves. Right? Right? But as Pete will show us next week, these specifics aren't needed anymore when we have God's Spirit moving within us, giving us a new heart to serve, right? If you love God, if you love God's mission, then you don't need to be told to give 10%, because you'll be asking, 10%, is that all? Am I allowed to give more? We are now freed to get creative we get to show our love we get to honor god in completely new ways outside of the box outside of a set of rigid rules right why because the spirit changes your heart your desire is what god desires now and just again just to be sure as christians we don't ditch the law simply because we now live by the Spirit, because the law still continues to show us what God is like, right? It showed us what living under God looked like back then for his people, but we still need to take that picture, take that image of obedience to God, to dig deep, to to know and find out what the underlying principles are, the unchanging truths about God's character, his plan, his goodness, his holiness, and then translate that to what it looks like for us today. But in the last part of this chapter, Paul makes it clear how the law shows us why we need the gospel so much. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That is, there is a clear discrepancy between the law, which is good, and the part of Paul within himself, which is not good. Now, as we heard the last section of the Bible that Grace read this morning, I don't know if you were left feeling a little bit confused. And it's not Grace's fault, but this passage itself is just a little bit hard to follow, isn't it? What I want to do, I do not do, verse 15. What I hate, I do. It is no longer I who do it, but sin living within me, verse 17. I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep doing. It is no longer I who do it, but it's a sin living in me that does it. Paul keeps repeating himself over and over again. And as, as you read these verses, can you feel Paul's frustration here? can feel his frustration, even though it's written down on a page for us. And the fact of the matter is, this is frustrating. This is confusing. Have you felt that same frustration before? You know sin is wrong. It's not who you are anymore. But you keep falling into the grip of sin over and over again. You, You just can't get rid of it from your life. And just when you think you've overcome your sin, bam, the Holy Spirit confronts you with Either that sin again or yet another sin that's lurking beneath the surface. And maybe you think, I'm a Christian now. I'm supposed to be free from this rule of sin, but I can't stop sinning. I know what I want to do. I know what I need to do. But so often I still can't do it. And maybe that's caused you to wonder, am I still a Christian? Why am I not moving past this? Can God really forgive me yet again? Now, have you've felt that way before, as frustrating as this experience is, I think this passage provides us with comfort. And that is, this is comfort. The struggle is actually a good sign. This struggle is actually a good sign. Why? Because it's actually a sign that this war that's raging within us, this battle that we fight as we see victory and defeat, well, it shows us that the Spirit is at work within us. This struggle, this internal war that we see Paul described here, it only happens because the Spirit is now in us and because sin is also within us, right? If there was no Spirit willing us to live God's way, then then the presence of sin won't bother us at all. But if it is, then of course it will. The Spirit has enabled us to be released from the clutches of sin, to be able to fight back And so, of course, sin will bother us. The Christian experience with our war with sin, it is unrelenting, frustrating. Maybe you feel like it's overwhelming. But brothers and sisters, take heart. If you have followed Jesus, he has given us his spirit to fight sin, to keep fighting sin no matter how frustrating it gets. That's why there's always going to be that struggle. But on the flip side, if maybe we don't feel much of a struggle against sin, if we don't feel any struggle at all, this might be a warning sign for us. Have we stopped caring about sin in our lives? Or do you think there are other more important, much more urgent problems in your life that need your attention besides our holiness? Maybe you don't think you're actually a sinner. Or maybe you think, my sin's not that bad. You know, I'm good enough, whatever that means. But as we saw in our previous chapter, while we're, not saved for, while we're not saved because of our righteousness, we are saved in order to be righteous. We are saved in order to serve God. And so let's not get complacent. And so as you keep reading God's word, as we, as we see God's standard of goodness in the law held out before us day by day, let's keep struggling against sin. Let's keep trying to live up to that, not, not by our own efforts, not, not in order to, to gain self-righteous, because we want to please God, because we've been, already been set free from the law's bounds. But there's a second truth that we need to remember as we struggle with sin. I've already alluded to this, and that is the law, we have already died to the law and its condemnation. We've already died to the law and its condemnation, Right? While the law can only condemn us because it always holds up this perfect standard that we can't live up to. Can you notice how Paul resolves this dilemma at the end of Romans 7? After his agonizing and frustrating attempt to, to paint his inner struggle with sin, where does he land? Verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only Jesus can do what the law could not do. Only Jesus could make us pure and perfect in the law where the law could not do for us. And this is really the biggest takeaway I want all of us to hear this morning. Because no matter who we are, no matter where we are, whether we are followers of Jesus or maybe we're not yet followers of Jesus, the temptation is always there to think that we can somehow be good enough if we just follow the right rules, right? If I do these these right things, if, if I don't do these certain things over there that other people do, if I live by some arbitrary moral code that I've come up with. But hear what God has to say about these rules. They don't work. They don't work. They don't solve the problem, the underlying problem of sin in our hearts. Rules might change some behavior sometimes but it never is able to transform our our hearts. It can never transform us into people who loves God and loves people as God demands. Rules only point out how much we fall short, how much our hearts naturally don't want to do the right thing that we know we should be doing. And so only Jesus who died in our place is the solution. Only God's Spirit who Jesus has promised us, who, who dwells within us when we follow him, Only God's Spirit can set us free from the law's condemnation. And so next time you're confronted with your sin, when the words of the Bible, when the law of God clearly points out your failings, next time you feel that inner struggle, next time as you wrestle with guilt and shame, resist that urge to just buckle down and and try harder to defeat sin by yourself. That only brings condemnation. But run to Jesus. Jesus. Run to the one who has already paid the price for you on the cross, asking for the Spirit's help to fight sin and to keep fighting sin, constantly confessing your sins to Jesus, the one, the only one who has made you acceptable before God. As we struggle against sin, don't let the law condemn us, but let us keep running to Jesus for our rescue. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your law, which is so good. Your laws which describe how we ought to be living under you. Your good intentions for how we are to relate to one another, to care for one another, to show what love actually looks like. And whilst, Lord, as we we keep reading your word and we, we feel condemned because of our inability to live up to the law. Again, Lord, we just want to give you thanks that you have provided the solution for us. That we aren't people that need to work as hard as we can by ourselves in order to attain a right standing with you. And once again, Lord, we just thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus. And so for all of us here, we, we pray that as we head out this week and beyond, there will be people who won't be tempted to keep trusting in works of the law, trying to do it ourselves, but to keep running to Jesus for our rescue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.